This is Catalog and Cocktails. Presented by Data.World. Hello, everyone. It's Wednesday once again, and it's time for Catalog and Cocktails, presented by Data.World. It's an honest, no BS, non-salesy conversation about enterprise data management with tasty beverages in hand. I'm Tim Gasper, longtime data nerd, product guy, customer guy at Data.World, joined by Juan. Hey, Tim. I'm Juan Cicado, the principal scientist here at Data.World. And as always, Wednesday, middle of the week, end of the day, and time to chat about data. And today, we're going to have a conversation which I've been wanting to go have for so long, which is about games and sports and data and books and education. I'm super excited to have our guest, Maddie Want, who's the VP of Data at Fanatics Betting and Gaming and author of the recently published book, Precisely Working with Precision Systems in a World of Data. Maddie, how are you doing? Welcome. Doing well. Thank you both for giving me an excuse to drink vodka on a Wednesday. Happy to be here. Well, you could always listen to us live and always have that excuse. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you're making up for us because we're in the office right now. And unfortunately, our cocktail game here is not so good. We got some beers. So, Maddie, thank you for upholding <laughs> the ideals of this podcast. So we'll start with that. What are you, what are you drinking and what are you going to toast for today? This is a vodka grapefruit situation. It's very summery, very refreshing. And I'm going to toast to... Well, if I can make it serious for a second, May 17th is the International Day of the Child Helpline, which is a cause that I think everybody on planet Earth would agree is valuable. It's main, it's, uh, it's intended to raise awareness about all of the helplines and hotlines that are available in various different countries um, for children who are in various states of need or distress to call. And I think it's awesome. The work they do is awesome and um, it's worth a cheers. So that is what I'm choosing to. Definitely. Cheers to that. That's a, I'm learning something new. Yeah. May 17th. Cheers to that. Cheers. We're having a beer. I'm having a cerveza brewed with lime from Firestone Walker. I think it's a kind of a Texas one. It's actually not that bad. Yeah, kind of light. I'm surprised. I'm surprised. I'm enjoying it. Hmm. How about you? I'm drinking a uh, Revolver Brewing Blood and Honey, which is another Texas beer. Uh, and this one is uh, a little bit on the sweet side, uh, so it's kind of a light sweet lager. So, so in addition to toasting for for May seventeenth, uh, the Child Helpline, um, it, we're continuing to celebrate. It's been three years. On Sunday, officially, it was three years, one hundred thirty episodes, I think over a hundred guests of doing Catalan cocktails. So, just thanks to everybody for listening. It is amazing. Uh, I'm, I'm super excited. We're both going to be next week at Gartner. So uh, catch us at Gartner in London. Uh, so that'll be a lot of fun. But hey, let's uh, go to our warm-up question. We're talking about sports today. So what is your favorite team mascot in all of sports? So I had to look this one up to make sure I got the name right. But um, the first game that I went to when I joined this job was an NHL game with the San Jose, San Jose Sharks against somebody who I can't remember because they lost and it didn't matter. Um, <laughs> and the, the I don't know if you know this, but the, the way that the Sharks come out onto the ice is through this giant shark head. And they have a shark mascot whose name is SJ Sharky, SJ standing for San Jose. Um, and he's awesome. And so ever since then, because that was my first game in this job, that's got to be my favorite mascot. That's yeah, a good one. I'm actually originally from San Jose. So oh, I'm, so you know Sharky. I'm familiar with Sharky, yeah, as a kid, go see some games. How about you, Tim? I guess I think I know what you're going to say. Well, I, I, I grew up in Cleveland. So, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so for me, I have a special connection to some of the Cleveland mascots. And I used to go to what were called the Cleveland Indians games, now the Cleveland Guardians. Um, and uh, the Cleveland Guardians had Slider, which was their mascot. Um, and I always enjoyed uh, seeing a slider throw the T-shirts out into the uh, into the stands and things like that. So that has a special memory for me. And I am a UT University of Texas grad. I'm a Longhorns. We have Bevo. I think uh, yeah, just being at the stadium and seeing and actually having a Longhorn there, like that is something that it's just always so exciting. And and it's always exciting just going around or traveling around the world. And you you carry the Longhorn, people will see that and they'll say, hey, hook them. So that's really cool. So. We all, we're, we're very sporty today. So. I know, I know. We all have our sports connections here, which is which is perfect. All right, well, let's dive in. Uh, Maddie, honest, no, yes. What are the what are your favorite stories? Where organizations have been criminally under leveraging their data. <laughs> yeah, I did say that tonight. 
Um, <laughs> well, what does it mean to criminally under leverage your data? I think I think it's going to sound obvious. You know, anybody who's listening to this podcast just sort of self-selectively is going to be somebody who uh, probably would agree with this statement. But you know, any organization that's not treating the data as an asset is criminally under leveraging it. That's sort of categorically true. Um, I, I think I hope that as a digitized world, we're moving past overall. Um, anybody realize anybody ha- not realizing yet um, what data can do for their organization? But you know, sometimes I still get surprised. And um, I've spent the last four years or so writing and publishing a book about just incredible uses of data across a range of different industries, public, private, nonprofit sector, and um, just really, really creative and transformative. And I'm, you know, I wish I wish everybody could know these stories and just be imaginative about ways that they can leverage their data. It's not just all about, you know, reporting and business insights. It's about thinking of it as something that has a dollar value and being able to find ways to make that come true. So, so let's unpack a couple of things here. And this may be a basic thing, but let, let, let's define it. What do you what do you define as data treating data like an asset? Because I know when people talk about treating data as a product, all that stuff. Like, what is your definition here about this? To make sure we are all on the same page. It's it's closest to like the accounting definition. It's you know which side of the balance sheet are you listing it on? Um, it's I I started in tech uh, thirteen years ago now, and and at that point data, or, or at least in the companies that I was working at at the time, data was a cost center. Everything to do with data was treated as a cost center. And that's because data wasn't making sales. Data wasn't the product that people were signing up to. Data was a secondary or tertiary function in the business who, you know, so often wasn't actually able to do what they needed to do. Um, and what they needed to do was undervalued anyway. And so I feel very lucky to have continued to work in tech over the last decade or so where um, that has basically completely changed. And now data is leading strategy at so many organizations. And on the other side, you know, on the on the veering two side or the other of the spectrum, there's an interesting conversation to be had about whether there is any intrinsic value in being data driven in and of itself. Like, is that a goal? Why would that be a goal? You know, is data sort of an end or is it just a means to some other end? And I, I think sometimes the sort of adherence to being data-driven can also be problematic. That's interesting. Uh, I know a lot of folks still use that language today where they'll say, our goal is to be data-driven or our goal is to increase our data literacy, right? Um, are you, um, do you see that as an end or as yeah. you've gone through your experiences, do you see that as just that's a, that's a part of the journey and there are other factors here. It's, it's more like a must do. It's more like a, you know, the goal is to, if you're, if you're in the, the B2C tech industry, like I am, the goal is to delight customers. The goal is to build something that's of value to people in the real world. And you gotta know your way around data in order to make that happen. But, but that's not the end goal. I, I, so this is this is super important, right? Understand how the business works. And you're like, in your business, our goal is to delight customers. So whatever you're doing with data, it better freaking delight customers. Otherwise, it's not providing value. It's not an asset. Then you're just then if it's just reporting and BI reporting and stuff like that, then it ends up being that cost center. And I would argue that we're still not there yet. I mean, I think the I would argue that the majority of the of the majority of, of any organization. They, 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 they think about uh, being data-driven when really it's like I, I, you want to be able to go and use data to generate new value. But in the, in, by saying they're being data-driven, they're really just doing the BI reporting and, and then focusing on the infrastructure to make sure that this data that generates this dashboard isn't broken or whatever. But it's like that's not delighting your customer. I mean, it's probably helping your operations folks that eventually go do that. But, but it's a very indirect way to go. Yeah. Delight your customers, help the organization make more money or save more money. And I think that's the disconnect that we need to go have. And I, I still think that we're, we're in two groups. Um, you are definitely kind of in this advanced, in this, in the, in the group that is delighting customers while other people are like, it's just part of the operation. So I think, I don't know, that, I'm, I'll start to rant. I'll, I'll shut up. Uh, <laughs> there's the, uh, there's the uh, 
you know, everybody who shops on Amazon, which is clearly one of the most data-driven companies in the world, it has this experience of you go on to buy a toaster and so you search through a bunch of toasters and uh, you leave and you get retargeted with a bunch of Amazon toaster ads. And then you come back and you buy one of the toasters and you continue to be retargeted with Amazon toaster ads. And there's like, there's a whole bunch of reasons why that happens. And, you know, there's a lot of smart people. It's not like this is easy to solve. Um, but it's just one of the most like crispy ways to help people who are not from the data industry understand what we mean when we say like delighting customers is the point of data because it is not delightful to be followed around for an ad for something you've already bought, especially when you like you feel the power of Amazon's personalization capabilities in other ways that are so striking. And then you have this um, this one particular retargeting experience and you think, gosh, okay. This is not ideal. <laughs> yeah, and, and that requires, in order to have that perspective, you actually have to step out of the, you have to see the forest from the trees, right? Like the, the tree that you see in front of you is, oh, well, optimal like thing here is, let me show the toaster after you look at toasters, because maybe when you look at a, a small enough range of situations, maybe that does result in the most clicks or something like that. But when you truly zoom out and you look at the bigger picture and you think from the, the outside in perspective, what does the customer feel, right? And what does our business actually care about? Does it only care about this transaction right now? Or does it care about the customer lifetime value? Mm. Then, then you all of a sudden your perspective changes. But that requires perspective. You have to understand the business and you yep. have to think beyond just the now, right? Yeah. So well, but there's so many stories in your book, but before we get into like stories, I, was, I just want you to kind of share your favorite stories. Give us some background about the book because it's very, very impressive. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and I mean, it's a, a huge motivation. And, and how long have you worked on this book? A lot of effort's gone in. Right? Four years, end to end. Four years to, to almost the day, but definitely to the month. It was, um, it was a, it was a bigger endeavor than I could have ever imagined, but you get into it and, you know, we, myself, and my co-author, Zach Tuman, he's from an academic background and he's also from, um, you know, a variety of different industry experiences. And, and one of the most recent and relevant was that he was the deputy commissioner of the NYPD. And, and through that association, like the experiences that he's had and also the way that I met Zach was because I was studying at um, Columbia SIPA at the time and he was my professor there, opened up this whole world of like public sector and nonprofit um, data stories that I think if left to my own devices, I wouldn't have thought to go there. I wouldn't have focused on that as much because my career has been in um, private industry the whole time. But, you know, some of my favorite stories came out of the, the public and the nonprofit sector. And I love to tell a couple of them if we get time. Um, but yeah, I, you know, the process of writing the book was, uh, a, a year of, um, thinking about the concept and breaking it down and really making an argument for what we were going to do and why, uh, selling that concept to someone. And then two years of interviewing fantastically interesting people about what they've done. And then a year of writing that up and editing it and editing it and then editing it a couple more times. Uh, and then here we are finally four years later, it's getting published, but, um, it was, it was an experience. I got to say, I might not be on the eight, nine, or 10 on the NPS scale of what I recommend writing a book. <laughs> <laughs> I might be a detractor on that scale. Well, I'm glad you have, because I think there's a ton of incredible stories that you, you've collected through this experience. And, you know, maybe it makes sense to, yeah, well, to jump into, into some of that. Like, Maddie, like when, when you think about your book and what you've been able to surface, you know, what, maybe let's start with your favorite story that's kind of come out of all of this. What's, what's your favorite story that you, that you ran into and were able to, to bring to life here? Well, I don't have any favorites, but I have two favorites. And one, <laughs> of, them, one of them is a story about an incredible company called Zipline, who I think actually in the years since we started writing the book has become more well-known, um, which is good. They deserve it. Um, what they've been doing is pioneering drone delivery of blood and medical supplies to remote parts of Rwanda and Ghana originally. And, and it's, it's, it's just what your childhood brain would imagine the power of drones might be. You know, they're extremely precise. 
They're extremely fast. Zipline has built up a pick and pack logistics infrastructure to keep blood cold in the drone. Just incredible, you know, stuff that you would imagine as a kid. Mm -hmm. Um, And then that drone will fly to wherever it's needed, somewhere that might not even have roads. And it will drop the medical supplies off and they can be used within a couple of hours instead of, you know, whatever the supply chain would have been without that option. And one of the things that I love about Zipline's story, that they're commercializing the product now. And so they're moving towards sort of commercial drone deliveries. They're operating in a couple of US um, states now. But what they were able to pioneer, and it took them about 10 years, relied on the freedom to basically play with airspace and to attempt to to work through all the stages of a startup, especially a hardware-based startup, um, and get to a point through all of those iterations that they must have done um, to the point where they could create something as important to the world as what they did. And, And you just, you couldn't have done that in Europe. You couldn't have done it in most of the US. There's the FAA here, there were rules, you can't just fly stuff around. And, and there's this great concept, this fascinating concept in sort of study of public policy and, and especially the nonprofit sector of um, this idea of leapfrogging. And that's where a less developed um, community, be it a country or whatever, due to often the lack of regulation, the lack of money being wasted on previous failed infrastructure projects leaves a sort of vacuum in which creativity can can actually flourish better than it might have in a more highly regulated, more highly industrialized um, environment. And I think that's a perfect example of Zipline did of that. But the reason it's in the book is the the precision of the drones. It's incredible. Um, The accuracy they can get to is down to a couple of meters of, of where they're needed. They navigate themselves to and fro. They avoid collisions. They know how to land. Awesome. Definitely one of my favorites. Wow. Um, this is fascinating. <laughs> so, so on. So because in, in this particular scenario, right, they're being able to take advantage of being in a place where I can, like, I have liberty, right, use the airspace. So they're able to go test a lot of things out, right, and they're gathering all that data to go see, hey, is this the best approach or so forth? Because you would not be able to go do that, as you said, in, in different places, in Europe and the U.S. And it was it was Silicon Valley science. Like these people, the headquarters was always in San Fran. But where they were operating was in Africa. So now they're able to take that technology, what they were able to develop over there and be able to apply it in other places, which, I mean, where there's regulation, but they've already kind of figured out the 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 the, the algorithms, the, the the data science behind things to make it work. Yeah, exactly. That's interesting. That's an interesting approach to go. Yeah. Like, where can I go do something where it's probably I have a little bit more freedom to go learn and make it like harden this out, and then it's like, okay, now I can take this to to another scenario where I've kind of already de-risked a lot of the scenarios. Well, and it's yeah. it's uh, one of those sort of you know uh, win-win type scenarios where. They needed to be in that kind of an environment to be able to collect the data, iterate on the data that they needed. And also, it was exactly the kind of environment where this type of service could be so impactful. Right. Exactly. There was an intersection there. And I think that's what makes it a win-win. It's easy to imagine, you know, other variants of this kind of an initiative, which might have been a win-lose, in which, you know, a less regulated or less industrialized um, location was sort of used as a training bed or as a test bed where, you know, maybe different standards were upheld and, um, and that being, you know, potentially exploitative. I think in the case of what Zipline did, it wasn't that. And that's why it feels like such an incredible story. It was something that was needed specifically there. And that's what they did. Yeah. It wasn't just a, a test bed. It was, they were also right. the beneficiaries. They were the, they were the customers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, that's, uh, that's cool. All right, you said you, said you had two favorites. Yeah, what's, what's your second favorite? So the, the second favorite story comes from NYPD. And, you know, thanks to Zach's history there, we got some just incredible people to agree to talk to us um, just, you know, at a high level about their careers and their experience. And I, I believe we, I don't know who else could have got that kind of <laughs> access. So it, that was awesome. Every one of these conversations was incredible. There are some brilliant people there. Um, back in the 1990s, the commissioner of the NYPD was Bill Bratton, and he had a deputy commissioner named um, Jack Maple. 
and they developed what is now a, a widely known and widely adopted uh, data-driven policing system named Com CompStat. Um, CompStat was a combination of data and process that you know deserves a whole case study just on itself. But the idea was very, very simple. Maple had this big map of the city and every time a certain type of crime happened, he would push a pin into the map and the pin was colored ro robbery, burglary, murder, whatever, homicide. Um, and over time, they would build up just a visual picture of where certain crimes were clustering over the city. And CompStat was the meeting by which all of the precinct heads were called in to, you know, commission headquarters and had to give a structured report about everything that had happened in their precinct in the last week. It was um, it was a grilling session. You know, apparently it wasn't super fun to be presenting there and, and Bratton's known to be a tough guy, but that was in the 1990s. And that is data, that is data-driven policing. And I think often today we think of data as a purely digital phenomenon. We think about data as bits, but that's not all it is. That's not all it was. There was data before there was computers. Um, and I think this is a beautiful example of that. And in 2018, there's this uh, sort of similar, similar in spirit initiative that emerges where there's a data scientist in the NYPD who, who notices that um, crimes occur in patents and, and that criminals uh, repeat crimes in multiple places because they figure out something that works and they keep doing it. It's, you know, it's a pain in the ass to think of a new crime type every time. <laughs> and, and so there's this race to race to identify the patent from a policing perspective. It's you want to identify that patent as soon as possible so that you can uh, direct resources to the next most likely place to get hit. Um, you can, you know, increase focus, you can develop tactics, you can respond more quickly, hopefully you can prevent the next crime. And um, for data, data scientist mindset, that looks like, okay, well, we've got 15 years of beautifully structured comp stat data on three levels of sort of um, high level crime. And uh, that seems like perfect fuel for a, in this case, it was a random forest where what they intended to do, what they tried to do was to create a model that could match a new crime to a, a potential patent or to, to other crimes based on similarity um, and find connections and find patents that, you know, the human eye couldn't. <laughs> maybe, maybe some brilliant detectives out there have that just innate ability to remember, like, wasn't there something else a year ago where, you know, this and that also happened and might they be connected? And that's sort of what you see on the police shows, a lot of that. But in reality, there's too many crimes to do that with. And, and especially in a city like in uh, New York City, you, you need a way to do that at scale. And so they went ahead and did that. They took, uh, I think it was a decade of historical data they wiped out zip code, gender, any sort of demographic information. It was important to do that because otherwise you would just get a biased representation of the city, which would say like, send all the police to all the poll places. You know, that's not helpful. Um, and it's it's not good policing either. So they they neutralized anything that was identifiable and, and they produced three models, one to identify crimes in burglaries, one to identify crimes in robberies and one to identify crimes in homicides. And, and by the end, they had about a 70% reconstruction rate, which means about 70% of the time, the model would accurately identify a crime as part of a patent. And they were able to train it on all of this sort of historical labeled data to say, uh, is, the, is the machine going to pick up yeah. that belongs with those? And it did that about 70% of the time. Um, why, why isn't that the way that everybody does policing today? Well, it's because of process and people and, and all of the non-tech parts mm -hmm. of data. And, and in the book, in Precisely, we talk about like a precision system is not just a model. It is the end-to-end -end implementation of that model in some workflow. And it's really more a book about change management than it is about data from that perspective. And the, the reasons why, it's called Patentizer, by the way. The reasons why Pat and I sort of ended up gathering dust was nothing to do with the efficiency of the model; it was to do with sort of everything else. 
Okay, the, the, so the, this is fascinating to go see how, I mean, we're, we're listening to you and like, okay, yeah, well, cool is the technology, the data, and I love how you're just, the honest no BS here is things like, yeah, that's not really, yeah, that, that's needed and we're gonna, and, and that works, but what makes it not work is gonna be the people in process. And I'm happy to hear that a lot of the book is really about change management. So what what are like what are the recommendations? What are the things that you're seeing? Because actually, we this is the topic. This is the theme of, in the three years. We say what is a theme that's gone through everything? Yeah, it's people and process and how to go deal with this. What what are your kind of thoughts and recommendations and from everything that you've been learning? It's almost like you go and identify any sort of canonical strategy book, and it'll bring you through like this is what the disruptor looks like. This is what the incumbent looks like. And you learn these sort of very high level concepts about markets and adoption and people. And then like you just translate that into the world of data and a good sort of a, a good way to think about it, which is a lens that we chose to follow in the book was what does it mean to achieve change with data as an executive, as somebody who has authoritative power, as somebody who can set strategy and mobilize resources behind that strategy? It means something very different as a middle manager, if you're trying to achieve change through data, you don't have the same tools, your perspective is not the same. And so we recommend a different approach. We've seen a different kind of approach be successful there. And then there's always, you know, the actual people who do the stuff, the individual contributors who are the ones who create this and really bring it to life. And, and how do they find connection to the sorts of support and, um, you know, space and protection to innovate on something and then have a chance of bringing that into the hands of customers or citizens or, or whoever the target audience is. When I, I really like this lens that you're kind of bringing in here, and it sounds like is a um, is a theme that actually kind of applies across the book is around sort of the disruptor versus the incumbent. It's almost like this market lens on, on the whole thing. Um, I actually want to take a little bit of a step back for a second from the stories and kind of what's being weaved in there. And I know like Maddie, you are a, a, data, a data leader, right? Um, and, you know, do we as data leaders often have to be in the disruptor position as part of our jobs in order to be able to accomplish the value that we want to achieve out of our data initiatives? Yeah, slam dunk. Uh, no, we don't. <laughs> We, I mean, the, the job of data leaders is not to innovate for the sake of innovating. It's not to develop cool stuff for the sake of developing cool stuff. It's to achieve an outcome. And sometimes there is value in disrupting and innovating, and there's definitely a place for that. It's about picking your battles. Like in, in what pocket of the situation around me do we A, need innovation do we need disruption? And also B, have a realistic chance of achieving that impact. There's no point throwing your best people, your smartest people at a problem, which sure, maybe quantitatively they could solve it. But in reality, there's no hope that it would ever get deployed, sold, approved, whatever. And so you have to think about the environment that you're in and whether you're asking people to do something that's um, possible, but doomed, or whether there's actually a path that you can see to disruption succeeding. And then as a leader, you're obviously thinking about like, what are the walls that I can prevent from caving in to allow these people to do that? Um, but honestly, like for most organizations out there, nobody needs, like, you don't need to be in the space of innovating or disrupting. Most organizations out there could benefit from just getting up to parity with, with what, you know, some of the strongest established leaders in their market are already doing. And a great example of this is like personalizing an experience. It's one of the most popular applications of, of AI in um, consumer facing products is basically just the concept that you have multiple objects and you have limited real estate, whether real estate is the size of the app or the, the duration of the customer's attention or whatever it is, you have to choose what to show them and why and you have to choose the most relevant thing that they're probably gonna engage with or like the most. Um, and personalization aims to solve for that by creating an experience that feels tailored to you. The ways to create personalization in a customer facing product today are really well established. 
you can go Google it. There's like, you know, you should do some lookalike modeling. You should say people who do this also do that. And, and that's solved for. And the majority of organizations out there could just go do that if they're not doing it. They don't need to reinvent the wheel or like file for a patent or anything. You know, just just look at what's being done around you and figure out how to do that. This is, I appreciate you bringing this up. I mean, I think people are just, oh, I need to be innovating, right? I need to go do cool stuff, right? People are not doing data. Let's just do data thing because it's cool. It's different. I'm like, well, if you're not doing it, you're already kind of behind the pack. And if you're not doing it well, you're still behind the pack. So like, you just need to kind of get to the to the baseline, the expectations. And guess what? That's, let's be honest, you're catching up. Doesn't mean you're, that means by definition, you're not, you can't be innovating. Just go catch up and get, get to that baseline. Later on, if you're the leader of the pack, you're the one who's driving what's going to go next and people will be following you, right? So right. Yeah, we have to acknowledge, are you a leader or are you a follower? Because you're not. And, and, and being a leader doesn't mean that you have to lead to the front of the market. Being a leader just means you have to achieve the impact by any means necessary. And that means maybe the strategy for the next 12 months looks pretty basic. And then the next 12 to 24 months looks a little more sophisticated. Like you have to have in mind a journey to go on that isn't simply imagining something really cool and asking, how can we make that possible ASAP? Like that's not how organizations achieve change. You have to build momentum. You have to build consensus. You have to prove value at a small scale. You have to untrust. Like it's, it's old school stuff in that sense, right? Like every, every how to win friends and influence people um, kind of book will tell you um, big change implemented suddenly isn't received well <laughs> yeah yeah and some of the some of the biggest impact that you can have can be incremental it can be it's, it all depends on the situation and, and it's not all just disrupt 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 you for those that are listening you don't have to figure out what your drone strategy is going to be in order to take your your data uh your data projects to the next level it could be it could be more simple than that so now i'm thinking is do you have any stories where they were not successful that we can learn from or anything you can talk about because it's like oh you were doing all these things to try to accomplish this and you didn't make it like you should have not done that right (laughs) (laughs) or differently or whatever like yeah yeah, well, I mean, the, the 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 NYPD one that I was just telling is a non-successful story. That that project got shelved. Um, but, you know, for the sake of some variety in the stories, there are definitely others. There was when there was there was actually an NFL comparison that we did. This was long before I ever dreamed of working for Fanatics, um, where we compared sort of the the philosophy and approach to analytics of two different NFL teams within the league and one was the Cowboys and one was the Ravens. And, um, you know, it was a Moneyball-esque story, but it was sort of a slightly modernized version of that where like the Ravens really embraced analytics to the point that they had an analyst sitting right next to the coach, like advising him on which plays to call, feeding through, you know, decision support effectively. And, um, And the story's about like, the team did surprisingly well in their division that year. And now that team is known for really having embraced analytics as part of um, sports strategy for themselves. Whereas, you know, the Cowboys took a little bit more of a cowboy approach. Their former coach is quoted as saying, yeah, no, we don't need any of that data. You know, Um, we're doing fine. We've been doing fine. We'll continue doing fine without any of that junk. Thank you. And then, you know, of course, he's no longer around. They didn't do great that year. Um, not, you know, not saying that's causal, but definitely it's, uh, it's an interesting correlation and it's interesting to look at two different players in the same industry, effectively embracing or resisting, um, the incorporation of data into strategy and and how that went for them overall. I'm, I'm, I don't know. Are you a Cowboys fan? One, I'm sorry if I offended you. No, 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 I'm not, not, not. No Cowboys fans here. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, I, this, this brings up like I think you working at, at, at Fanatics and stuff. Is there any interesting more sports data stories that you can go share? Just... A million. Most of them I'm not allowed to. But um, you know what? What we're doing at Fanatics is is building towards being 
the place for sports online, the one and only, you know, the, the, the destination. And Fanatics is a very well-established, um, very well-known brand in America and, and venturing into sports betting and collectibles and, and live um, as we are this year is all about like new offerings to the customer. And um, in many cases, new offerings to the same customer. You know, we want to be a part of people's lives when they think about sports, they're referencing, you know, something that we're offering. And, and the data challenge there is obvious, right? It's, it's create a comprehensive picture, like understand what actually motivates customers, who our customers are, who they could be, what markets are we in, what markets can we move into? And for anybody who works in data, you know, that's a challenge of mm -hmm. um, synthesizing databases and access and, you know, policy. And um, there's just years and years worth of plumbing type work before you can talk about that dream of like the crystal clear customer 360 view. Um, and for, for an established company, Fanatics has been around for a long time. Uh, whereas Fanatics Betting and Gaming is brand new. We have like, you know, a beautiful comparison of, of strategies and technologies from years ago and from right now. And um, it's, it's, it's my dream job for sure, for that reason. I think it's just a once in a lifetime chance to do a data strategy from scratch. But I also, I'm coming to love the sports aspect. And that's not what I went in for. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I'm not, uh, I didn't, I didn't grow up around sports too much. And despite being Australian, I, I think like the Wallabies were the only thing that sort of motivated my family in the sports area. Um, I've come to love it because I've been to a bunch of games now and I've been around fans and I understand, I understand fanaticism more than I did. And I understand like a little bit more about the value and the sense of community that being fans of a team gives you. Um, I didn't understand that before this job. So it's been, it's been fascinating from that perspective, but, you know, for me at the end of the day, what drew me to the company and what I'm most excited about is the data challenge. You know, what, what's, what I love hearing from you is that the focus on the customer, right? Understanding what they, who, who the customer is and what you want to go and uh, selling, upselling and so forth. And then it's, you really need to understand that customer, right? You need, you, you need to put yourself in the shoes of the customer to figure out, hey, what does the light actually mean? And then you can connect the dots around that. Um, I'm always curious about this from data leaders. Uh, you just said that you're kind of the, in, a, in a new new company, even though FNX has been around for a long time. What is your what is your experience about setting up like a data strategy in a new place versus, oh, setting up a data strategy in an older place? Like how, how do those things uh, differentiate or, or what, what overlaps or not? Inheriting, inheriting technology, inheriting established teams, inheriting historical data can be a real advantage because you have people that know what they're doing. You have technology that already functions and you have history. And it's, it's, um, it's just shocking having no history as, as a, as a data leader, like just imagine you had zero history. That's a crazy place to start from. Um, but, you know, that is that is a change management. Again, it's probably the keyword of this podcast is yep. that's a change management. If you're coming in to try and achieve something that's not currently being achieved, then you're going to implement changes of some kind. And whereas coming in clean slate, that is purely a strategy challenge. It's where do we need to go? Who do we need to do that? What do we need to build to do that? Where should we take risk? Where should we avoid risk? Um, and, you know, at a high level, my philosophy is and always has been make, make solid partner decisions and, and invest in that relationship because they'll grow with you and they'll help you. Um, don't invest resources in building or rebuilding things that are not IP for your business. Like, do you need to build a CRM engine? No. That's solved for. You should just buy that. Unless you're a company that sells CRM engines. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I do still see a lot of companies building where they could be buying a lot and, and you know, spending the time of like precious engineers building stuff that isn't unique, isn't differentiating, isn't competitive. So I try to focus that way. With as a risk portfolio, obviously being in a regulated environment, there are very high standards to be met about how to operate the business. And 
If any of you know about the gambling industry in the United States, it's a state by state business, different state regulators, different partners within each state to work with. It's not a nationwide solve. And so the infrastructure that we build and the way that we structure our data and our databases has to be um, very secure and segmentable and, you know, it's good. It's a great challenge. It's it's forcing us to invest in governance, security, et cetera, upfront that in a different industry, we wouldn't have needed to be this sophisticated on this early in the game. That's, that's really interesting. I honestly wasn't expecting you to pose as many challenges as you had uh, around starting with a clean slate, but I come away with what you're saying here, actually seeing quite a quite a big challenge there versus having an established, I mean, folks always talk about the challenges of like, oh, I went into an organization and they weren't doing things right and I had to change the direction, but at least there was an established approach and people had a way of doing things and you could leverage on that. And actually that clean slate can be extra challenging because you, you, you don't really have anything to work with and you got to choose what order am I going to tackle these things? And, and then also you mentioned about like security and things like that. You kind of knew what use cases you wanted to address um, and there was no established infrastructure for that yet. And so you had to tackle that um, yeah. uh, from now, the beginning. I, I would consider that uh, opportunities for clean slate kind of situations are just recent. Or like in the last 10, 15 years, probably. Uh, I don't know. What, 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 because, but what's going through my head right now is like, okay, you, you define, we define kind of two things, right? Like it's, in the old and the new, right? In the old, you're like you said, it's change management. You have all these existing people, teams, tools, and they go do. And then in a new place, like, oh, it's a clean slate. We got to it's focus on strategy. And there's all these different, the challenges are very different. I mean, there's, I mean, obviously there's kind of the same challenges, but the types of the ways you know, you would deal with those challenges are very differently. So yeah. I'm just thinking about like, oh, I'm a data leader. Like, well, okay, perfect. What type of data? Where's your experience? Are your experience in the old, in the old places where you have, have to deal with change management or you have experiences in, in the new places you deal with clean slate because um, that really shows where your expertise can go. And, and I think the clean slate uh, data leaders are probably going to be fewer because it's more of a recent thing. I don't know. That's what I'm considering right now. I don't know. What are your thoughts? I'm, I'm, I'm spoiled because I've worked in data only in a cloud world and sometimes like because of the title, I get invited to like data leader, you know, round tables and dinners and things like that. And I usually look at the attendee list and, you know, often it's company like people from big names like Procter and Gamble type companies, real like American giants. Um, and I and I think about like, how much am I going to have in common with any of those folks? You know, not much, part. not much. Uh, there's, you know, there's there's being a digital native and there's being um, an existing company, especially Behemoth, that has a lot of data and needs to use its data well. And the challenges are so different and the technologies are different. Like I'm uncomfortable if it's not the cloud. <laughs> I'll do on-prem when necessary, but like really I'd rather not. Um, and and it, you know, everybody can be called a VP of data, but what you're actually doing in the job depends so hugely on when the company was begun. Yeah. Yeah. That that is interesting. And yeah, now that we live in this world where you could technically build your entire data infrastructure purely made out of cloud-based and modern oriented tools. Um, it's, it's a very different landscape. And, and to some degrees, I imagine, and, and feel free to refute this, I'm, I'm curious if you agree with this or not, that maybe uh, the job of starting from scratch, although it's hard still, definitely hard, it's maybe easier than it's ever been because of the ability to leverage oh, yeah. cloud and modern tools? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no refuting for me, especially like if you've been around um, these tools and sort of the industry landscape, you've worked with partners that you trust. In my case, you know, the big difference that sort of helped me sleep at night with with this job is that I was able to convince one or two key people from prior roles who I've worked with and who I trust to come and do this journey with me here. And that I like the, just the anxiety level, you know, I thought, oh, okay, so-and-so is here. We're going to be good. I know exactly how we're going to approach this. And, you know, there are some things that you don't need to re-examine too closely and you can just get it done and move on. 
Um, and then there are other problems that are brand new, super ambiguous, and you need to spend a lot of time on them before you can make a move that you feel confident in. And um, having precedent, meaning having precedent doing this kind of challenge before and having a team that you trust is is the difference maker. So before we get out to the next things, uh, my final thought question here for you is, I'm curious, where do you report to and where and how are you seeing kind of different day leaders reporting to what and what does that mean? Yeah. That's, that's always curious about this. I love this question. So I report to the CTO. Okay. And then I send the CTO then to the CEO? Yeah. Okay. And uh, if anything, that was the that was the second most important thing to me about this job was I've seen data reporting into all sorts of funky places. And, and I've seen data split up and reporting into multiple different places more commonly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in a company where you've got data analysts reporting up to the CFO and the CMO separately, you've got data engineers sort of smushed in with cloud platform engineers and not really given their own space. Governance is sort of like a weird, uncomfortable side function for InfoSec. And like, how are you going to, how are you going to do anything in that environment? Like the, the cost of collaboration is just exorbitant. And, and if you put a singular leader in there and say, okay, you go in and make change in this environment, they're going to be just cuffed. Um, what I loved was the opportunity to, to lead data end to end, every part of it, and, and say like, okay, I've got engineering, I've got analytics, I've got governance, I've got data science, I've got ML. Like, it, it was really just like a you know, blank check. And, and that has so many of the um, the types of problems that I'm familiar with, like the the throwing over the fence of issues and the this group did something I wasn't expecting type issue, they just don't happen because we're all in the same chats. We're all in person together. Sometimes we meet up and it's it's our teammates. It's not some other foreign group that we have to go coordinate with. It's just us together. And um, that has been that's been huge as well. And now I think, you know, on the theme of me being spoiled, I don't think I would work somewhere um, where that wasn't true now. You know, you got to be able to make people decisions. And if you're supposed to be a data leader achieving some kind of impact and change, like, and you can't make the right people decisions because your people are all split up across various different leaders, it's going to be super hard to have an effect. Just before we move on to some of our final questions and things here, um, how much do you perceive that a, a data leader like yourself can, like, imagine you were walking into a different situation and, and things were disparate or separated or reporting to the wrong place. Like, how much do you feel data leaders can impact that or change that once they get into that role? Or do you think that really you got to you got to you got to decide if this is what you want to tackle before you enter the chair, kind of like you did? I've seen it. I've seen it actually. In a, in a recent job in the last five years, I saw just an excruciating, beautiful example of this, of somebody who was brought into a company, given a super high title, but very few people, and said, like, we're not data-driven today, and we got to be. Go. And we're going to pay you a ton of money, and go. Um, and what I watched this person do over the next couple of years was just brilliant. It was, first of all, like, do the must-dos and earn trust. Spend a full year doing that. Build the reports that don't exist. Have the meetings that don't exist. Hire the analysts that don't exist. You know, take the take the pain away. Take the thorn out of someone's side. Probably the person that hired you, um, and and provide them some leverage. And and let's all just be calm. And then, over time, that person built trust, and they said, "Hey, like." I actually think we could be doing this a little bit differently, or, or I actually think like if we if we invested in that, we might see this kind of return later on and started just making very gentle sort of um, scope and, and resource asks. Let me try this. Let me try it. And then they would succeed at that. They'd earn a little bit more trust. And um, now that leader runs all of product and data. And because they were just so incredibly effective at fusing mm. data into the product and the business strategy, they own so much trust. It took years. And, and that is now my model for like, you know, how to move in a situation like that. Yeah. This is a beautiful statement right there. I, I love this. This is minute 49 that you said. Now, something that I, that I, that I once I, I hear what you're saying, I'm like, th- this is a long term, right? This is like, 
you don't do everything you just said in, in one or two years. I mean, well, I don't, at least I don't think you can be able to achieve that. But then you hear the whole, well, CDOs, 10 years, only 18 months and stuff like that. So then it's like, this is what you should do. But then we're not seeing this in reality in the market. So there's some there's incentives that are well aligned. I mean, something there's a mismatch. right? Well, now. I, I get the feeling that what you mentioned, that story there is not the normal story. And, and, I, and I think that there's something to be learned here for, for data leaders that are trying to make impactful change is I, I kind of think of the story that you went through there. And I also think about uh, earlier in the podcast, you mentioned like how to win friends and influence people uh, and kind of in passing. Yeah. And, I, and I don't think this is explicitly mentioned in that book, but one of the themes of that book is like people investing in people, building, building trust. I think about like the trust bank, right? Yeah. And if you really want to influence change and do change management, you're, you kind of need to put money in that trust bank so that finally when it's time to do something disruptive, like move people from one part of the organization to the other or bigger, uh, bigger changes than that, um, then you can cash in. Yeah, it's it's simple stuff when you think about it from this lens. But it in the moment, it's infinite patient conversations. It's like infinite understanding and learning and listening. And that can be hard to do on a day-to-day -day basis. And just seeing it done every step of the way was like uh, very enlightening for me. Yeah. Well, hey, we said we can talk for hours. And I mean, I'm, I'm, now we're like, we're getting more and more. And stuff. I wish we could go into more of the uh, book stories too. Yeah. But, you know, for all our listeners, definitely go check out the book and, and all sorts of stories that you can check out there. All right. We're, so we're going to do this segment, the AI Minute. You got one minute to rant about AI, anything you want, go. Okay, I got it. It's public literacy. As a, as a you know, a, a policy person and a, a policy thinker, like I spend a lot of time thinking about um, to what degree the understanding of AI and, and most recently LLMs has sort of permeated public discourse and and I can see or I fear that it's it's not enough, it's not sufficient. And there are countries, New Zealand is a great example. I think they did a brilliant sort of public education campaign about, um, I think it was actually privacy recently. I don't think it was AI specifically, but, but you know, like governments can be investing in this. They can be helping people understand what does it mean to use an LLM? Is, is an LLM gonna tell you the truth? No, not necessarily. People don't know that, they don't understand that. And, and these incredibly powerful technologies are being pushed so fast and they're so exciting and so awesome. And, you know, as a public sector, as a, you know, how are we supporting citizens to make use of these tools? It's just, it's woefully far behind. And it's easy to, from the outside, say like, you should do more, but you know, you should. So that's my that's, rant. That's a unique uh, take on that. I, uh, I, I something, look at something this actionable. Case. Yeah. All right, so let's run into our lightning round. We got four questions. Uh, these are some are yes or no, some are like a little bit of you got two options here. I'll kick it off. So, in the stories you collected, were they just like basic statistical approaches or are, that were at the center of success, or were there advanced techniques and advanced AI at the center? Is this a yes no question? No, this is the, this is the one or the other, right? So, you think just basic statistical approaches or advanced AI techniques? more towards the latter but heavily also like some of these scenarios were just just like back of the napkin math and and by the way like i'm hijacking here for a second for a tangent but like that's also a big part of the of the point of this is to say like you don't you don't need to be doing ml you can sometimes like linear regression is just fine yep. just do that amen to that awesome. <laughs> Um, all right, second question. So sabermetrics, Moneyball, betting and gaming, you know, the sports world is kind of seen at the center of a lot around data these days. Um, have you been impressed as you've stepped into this world by what's been going on there? Or, you know, the flip side of that would be actually a little bit underwhelmed. Whatever you could say. <laughs> I would say the world in, in gaming specifically, the world of um, odds and probabilities is incredible. And decades of work has been done to get this industry to like just a state of implementation of, you know, scaled probability tools that I, you know, I don't know where else you find that maybe in like exchange markets of some kind. In terms of the adoption of data as a part of strategy in leagues, teams, you know, sports betting operators, sports companies, et cetera, that has been, you know, 
that certainly that, you know, not everybody has come from that background and they're beginning to incorporate it. And it has sometimes been surprising. There are billion dollar companies, billion dollar industries out there that just function on, on less data than you'd think. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Next question. Can an organization treat data like an asset if they don't have a clear data leader? They can. The two people that I think can sub in effectively are the CPO and maybe the CMO. Obviously, the CEO counts. Sure, fine. But in terms of people who might spot the the asset value, I can imagine the CMO can think of creative ways to, you know, trade, augment, apply um, the the body of data that they have, and and then the CPO obviously is thinking about how to productize that and get it into the hands of customers and. Um, so yeah, I think you can. I think you can. I think it'd be harder. Yep. But that's just job security. Like, just before we go into question four, I want to veer into a little honest NBS territory here. You 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 omitted CIO and you had omitted CTO. I assume that was purposeful. CIO is an old title. I don't know if people even have that anymore. <laughs> Fortunately or unfortunately, actually, yes. <laughs> actually now, now I'm curious to see uh, digitally native uh, modern cloud companies would do things when they have a CIO. That yeah, sounds very digital officers and things like that. That sounds very like Oracle to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, last, last, last uh, lightning round question. Yes. You go. So the last question, Maddie, is: um, Are we trending as organizations? towards, and I'm going to use a very particular word here, more productivity with data? Or is it going to get worse? Is it getting worse before it gets better? No, I think it's getting better. Okay. I do. All right. Tim, takeaway times. Taking away with my takeaways. Kick us off. Oh my gosh, so much good stuff today. So we started off with this phrase, which is, criminal under leveraging of data and any organization you said that's not treating data like an asset is criminally under leveraging it and stop committing crimes everyone leverage your data use it as an asset treat it like an asset um and as a digital world now you mentioned hopefully we're moving past the confusion of what data can do for your business there are so many creative possibilities um it's not all only about business reporting and dashboards and uh, you answered that, what does it mean to treat data like an asset? You, you mentioned that it's closest to like an accounting perspective. Which side of the balance sheet is it on? Um, you know, earlier in your career, you mentioned that, you know, data was more like a cost center, undervalued, but now as we go forward, it can lead strategy. Instead of being a liability, it can be an asset. Um, data-driven, data literacy, those aren't end goals. Those are must-do, those are table stakes. The goal is to do something of value for people and for customers delight your customers. Um, and you mentioned uh, about your book. Your book was four years in the making. Uh, your co-author, Zach, was you know formally affiliated with the NYPD and leveraged his network and, and, and experiences there. And you interviewed folks for two years and then spent another year editing, 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 and pulling together this really awesome collection of stories um, of how folks have leveraged data sort of the, the, the leveraging of data and perhaps in some cases, some, some criminal under leveraging or, or mistakes that have been made away along the way. So I think that's awesome for folks to check out as a follow-up to this. Um, your favorite story was uh, two of them. One was Zipline, which uh, was pioneering drone delivery of blood and medical um, devices and, and services to remote parts of, of Africa. Uh, and how, even though they were a, a company headquartered in San Francisco, they were able to operate in an environment in Africa where they could experiment, they could iterate, but they didn't do it in a way that was a win-lose, where maybe they were taking advantage of the situation there, taking advantage of people. It was actually in the service of those people. Those people were the customers, and so it was a, it was a win-win. And so that's a great story of leveraging data to make these highly accurate drones um, that could, you know, uh, not crash into each other and things like that while also helping people. Uh, and then you also mentioned uh, around the NYPD, how back in the 90s, I think it was, they, they created CompStat, where uh, they, they were taking the data around crimes happening in the city and being able to keep track of history and trends. 
And then in 2018, there was a similar in spirit initiative, uh, Patternizer, I think you mentioned, uh, where they looked at the patterns uh, across that history. Uh, and when a crime happened, they could kind of predict if that crime was going to repeat uh, to very high accuracy. Uh, and unfortunately, that project was ultimately shelved, which I think might be a little bit of a handoff to Juan, Juan is going to talk about here around uh, change management. So Juan, over to you. Yeah, and I, like you said, your book, uh, it's actually a lot about change management. I think that's a really important part, right? Take, you got to take the lens, the market lens. This is what a disruptor looks like, what the incumbent looks like, right? We understand the three levels, executive, middle management, individual contributors, like where do things go? And I, I love your, your, your very honest OBS take here. It's like, hey, data leaders, there's, you're not there to, to, to innovate for the sake of innovating. It's all about outcomes. Pick your battles and understand where do you need to innovate. And sometimes, guess what? You probably don't need to innovate, right? You really uh, need to be thinking about that environment that you have. Is it possible that, to go do this, but will it be doomed because you won't be able to deploy it? So don't even consider doing that. Um, and sometimes, like, many organizations are just so behind the pack that all you can benefit is just getting to parity. That means that there is no innovating disruption needed right now. You just need to play catch up, go focus on that. Because being a leader means that you should achieve the outcome. And this may mean that the next 12 months is just doing the simple catch up stuff. Maybe later you get a little bit more innovative, but you gotta do that basic stuff. We um, talked about what is it before between like the older companies and newer companies, right? So in defining strategy, if you're an older company, you have to, you're inheriting people, you're inheriting teams, you're inheriting tools. It's all about change management. While in a new place, right, it's, you have a clean slate. It's a strategy challenge. So, but it, there's a lot to consider there, right? Where do we need to go? Where should we take risk? Where, where should we not take risk? Like, who are the partners that we're going to go uh, work with and that we're make solid decisions? Where should we be investing or not investing in doing things, right? Don't invest in things that are not part of your IP. Invest in security and governance up front. Um, and in your case, you said it kind of spoiled because you worked in that cloud world. And I think as data leaders, you understand which world you live in. And that's how you understand how you relate to other data leaders. Um, and then we finalize with, with reporting. Uh, where, did, where, where is reporting? And you report to the CTO, gets up to the CEO. And but we see that reporting can happen so many different places, right? Especially if you see data reporting to the CFO and CMOs and governance reporting to InfoSec and stuff. That makes it really, really hard. It, there's always a preference to kind of lead the lead data from end to end. It's kind of that blank check. But if you don't have that possibility, I mean, you just got to start with the must-dos and, and, and generate trust, right? I like that you said, just do the things that don't exist that need to exist. Build the reports that don't exist, right? Take that thorn away from the person who hired you. Start making trust. And then you can ask for some little change. What do you think about that? Generate more trust, and that's how that cycle continues. How did we do? Beautiful. Anything wow. Else? Recall 100. <laughs> hey, who, need, who needs chat GPT? <laughs> we got Juan and Tim. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, to wrap this up, let's back to you. Three questions. What's your advice about data, about life? Uh, who should we invite next? And what resources do you follow? Okay. I'm, my advice is something that it took me way, way, way too long to learn. It is, you do your best work when you're getting your best rest. Amen to that. <laughs> I, I, I uh, When I was in grad school, I was also sleeping not that much. And then I had a shift. I started sleeping my eight hours. And I realized, oh, I'm kind of being more productive. <laughs> I'm now. I feel smart now. Yeah. yeah. Don't, don't just burn the candle at both ends. Yeah. What about uh, who should we invite next? Okay, I got I got two people on the list. I don't know. They're both very important people. I think you should shoot your shot. Um, one of them is Tom Davenport, who is just one of the best like contemporary sort of thinkers on AI in in the context of like corporate transformation. I think um, we were lucky enough to convince him to write the foreword to the book, which was just stunning. Um, but he he has also published a book recently. It's fascinating. And, and it's all about, you know, again, just like building that bridge between the people who are pioneering AI and sort of the rest of the world. Um, and he's very, very good at that. Uh, and the second person I would say is somebody who I started following a couple of years ago, whose perspective I really appreciate. Um, she's called Timnit Jebru. And she was uh, um, well known for her 
prior role at Google, but she's been she's been a researcher and a thinker for a long time. And um, just the perspective is it's it's her perspective is generally a great reminder of things that can often be overlooked in the world of like the excitement of innovation. And like we have LLMs that can do incredible things now, for example, um, just yesterday or today, she had posted something about the workers who do content moderation training for the models that power many of the products we use day to day, Facebook, et cetera. Um, they do content moderation, like content labeling, yes, no, appropriate answer, inappropriate answer. And they filter out some really disturbing content and prevent it from arriving on any of our screens. And um, there's a there's a there's a company who provides these services in, in Africa, there's a few companies actually, and those workers unionized because they weren't getting adequate sort of rest, treatment, compensation, rights, et cetera. And it's just this reminder that like these lovely tools that make our lives easier, it takes a lot to get them up and running. And and some of some of what it takes is really tough stuff. And um, you got to think about the whole like evolution of that beautiful handy product that you're now enjoying um, and whether it was ethically made at sort of every stage of the process. So she's great. You know, she's, she's fantastic. We've been following her, all her stuff for so many years and and a lot of amazing stories you can tell. Um, Finally, what, what resources do you follow? Do you recommend people, blogs, podcasts, books? I mean, obviously your book. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I got one great resource for you. Um, I, I think this is an illegal answer, but like, I don't have favorites. I, I just snack. I just peruse. I'm, I'm on people's personal like medium blogs. I'm like following all of the big news channels. Like there's no go-to for me. I, I, I do feel like that's an illegal answer, but we've had folks say, you know, LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Yeah. I just follow LinkedIn's great. LinkedIn's great. Well, Maddie, thank you so much. Just a quick reminder, next week, our guest is going to be Ben Clinch. He's an enterprise architect at BT, a, a British telecom called BT. We're going to be actually live from Gartner in London. Uh, we're going to have a slight change. We usually do this live 4 p.m. We're going to change it next week. We're going to be live at 11 a.m. U.S. Central Time, which will be 5 p.m. U.K. time. Uh, that will be next week. And with that, Maddie, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, and again, Check out your book, Precisely Working with Precision Systems in the World of Data. And as always, thanks to Data World. Let's just do this every Wednesday. <laughs> Thank you for having me. This was fun. Cheers, Cheers. Cheers. This is Catalog and Cocktails. A special thanks to Data.World for supporting the show, Carly Berghoff for producing, John Loyans and Brian Jacob for the show music, and thank you to the entire Catalog and Cocktails fan base.